Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for checking into the best Houston sports podcast. And with the induction of Hal Smith and Terry Poole into the Astros Hall of Fame this past weekend, I wanted to play you our tribute to Terry Poole a few months ago and the hour-long conversation we had with Tal Smith a couple of years ago. My original Houston Sports Talk co-host, R.G. Seal, and I got to sit down with Tal and get into all the major highlights of his historic career, like his early days constructing the Colt 45s in the Astrodome, along with memories from that first Astros playoff team in 1980 and working with the Yankees legendary owner, George Steinbrenner. But before that, you'll hear my co-host Stephen Kerr and I look at what made Terry Poole so special. This is an audio-only podcast. Both pieces of this are in my YouTube page archives, though, so hopefully you've already subscribed to it. If you haven't, don't forget to do it and listen back through our huge Houston sports history playlist with tons of conversations with Houston sports legends, both players, coaches, and media members. If you missed it, our last podcast was the Texans postgame show with some thoughts on Lance McCullers return thrown in there as well. So without further ado, let's start with me and Steven on Terry Poole. Were you a Terry Poole fan, Steven? You know, I liked him. I mean, he was solid. I mean, he had a 280 lifetime batting average and he batted leadoff most of the time. So yeah, during that period, he was the Astros leadoff hitter. So pretty respectable. I mean, I, I was glad to see him get in. I mean, he's certainly another all-around good guy uh, from Canada, of course. And, you know, he played 14 of his 15 years with the Astros. And the only two players who have played any longer than that with the Astros are the obvious ones, Greg Biggio and Jeff Bagwell. So, you know, Terry Poole hung around a very long time with the Astros, put up some pretty solid numbers. And, of course, you know, he was part of that first team that went to the playoffs in 1980. And I think the fear sometimes when you're doing this Astros Hall of Fame thing and you're you're trying to pick somebody every year is, okay, are we going to get desperate? Is everybody going to deserve it? Well, let me just throw this out there for those wondering what makes Terry Poole so special. And here here's the resume. He had an 855 OPS and a 372 batting average in 13 playoff games, big time right. clutch hitter, big yep. time. Yep. Hit 526 in the 1980 Phillies playoff series, which set a then NLCS record. Terry Poole's fielding percentage is the 18th best outfield percentage in the history of the sport. It wasn't just that he didn't make mistakes. He could cover ground in the Astrodome too. He racked up 217 career steals, really speedy guy, smart base runner, as as you remember, Stephen. And he ranks in the Astros' top 10 in war, games played, and hits. And, oh, by the way, you mentioned Canada. He's a member of the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame. Well, you know, he patrolled center field about as well as anybody. And as you said, Robert, he was he was the model of consistency. And, no, I, I cannot remember one instance where Terry Poole dropped a ball that you know, determine the outcome of a game. I mean, this guy was as solid as it gets. So, yeah, I'm I'm certainly happy that he got in, and I'm definitely happy Tal Smith got in. I mean, you talk about somebody that deserves it. Tal Smith certainly does and had several different times with the Astros. And, you know, my thing about Tal Smith is that no matter where he goes, the guy just wins, period. <laughs> Joining me and RG on the line is Tal Smith, who from 1960 through 2011 spent 35 years in the Astros front office as farm system director, GM, and team president among his many titles. Thanks so much for joining us, Tal. And in that introduction, I said 1960. It all started for you two years before a Major League Baseball game was played in Houston. Can you tell us the story of how you end up here in Houston? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's been a it's been a fun trip. A lot of a lot of great memories. Uh, I had actually started my baseball career uh, late in 1957 uh, with the Cincinnati Reds. Gabe Paul was the uh, general manager of the Reds, and I can recall distinctly uh, uh, in in October of. Uh, of 1960, uh, uh, my wife and I and our young daughter had just made a 
a trip uh, back to North Carolina uh, to, to visit our families. And uh, in those days, I didn't have a uh, <laughs> I had a car without a radio. <laughs> and I pulled into the driveway, and my mother came out to greet us, and she said, everybody in the world from Cincinnati has been calling you, so uh, including Gay Paul. So I, I, I returned the call, and Gabe advised me uh, that he was going to Houston uh, to take over the, uh, the, uh, the newly designated expansion club and invited me to join him. And uh, so uh, we, we quickly turned around, went back to Cincinnati, packed up and arrived in uh, Houston in late October of 19. Uh, 60, and that started the journey with, at that time, uh, the uh, Colt 45s. And uh, that actually, at that time, the team hadn't even had had not been named, and uh, whatnot. So we uh, <laughs> so we started then in uh, November 1, 1960, was my first date of employment with the new franchise, and it's been a long run since then. <laughs> you were the farm system director to start with. What do you remember about? building that Colt 45 team in the early years, trying to build a Houston's farm system from scratch. Yeah, that, that, that was interesting uh, because that was the days uh, prior to the amateur draft. The amateur draft came into, in, into effect in 1965. But in our formative years there, starting with, uh, with uh, 1961 through 1964, and I, I was only involved in the scouting and player development at that time for the first two years because in 1963, and this is another chapter, but I, I, I was asked to take over the uh, project as a team's liaison for the construction of the Astrodome. So, but, but in 1961 and 62, uh, obviously, we're trying to sign players and build an organization. Uh, there were two different concepts. Uh, one, uh, some players and families regarded this as opportunity, uh, you know, because if, if you sign, you're not playing behind a backlog of other prospects in an organization like you would be with the established clubs. But on the other hand, you didn't have any identity yet. And there were people that didn't quite understand this expansion. Uh, why don't you haven't played a game yet? So on and so forth. In the, uh, it stands in the local market, obviously, we, we advertised and promoted and uh, worked very hard with tryout camps and one thing and another. And we were successful in signing Rusty Staub in 1961 and, and several other players that had, uh, had great promise. Rusty was probably the most prominent of those, although Dave Justy is another one that uh, comes to mind. I signed him out of Syracuse uh, University, and he went on. He started with the Houston franchise and then went on to great success at uh, Pittsburgh and St. Louis, as I recall. So the, anyway, uh, we signed a lot of players, and frankly, during the first 13 years of the franchise, from 1961 through 1973, we signed and developed uh, more major league players than any other organization at that time. So, you know, we, we put together a good scouting staff, uh, worked very hard, and sold opportunity. Joe Morgan was a, was an early signee. Signed him. Uh, he came to spring training in 1963, sort of as an unheralded player at that time. Uh, Jimmy Wynn, uh, we, uh, we obtained. In a uh, in the professional Rule Five draft, uh, why not? There were a lot of you know a lot of prominent players that uh, that we were able to corral in the early years. Yeah, speaking of the early years, there could you kind of elaborate upon uh, Joe Morgan because you know he would eventually go on to a Hall of Fame career with the Cincinnati Reds, and then also uh, another iconic Astros player, uh, Larry Durker, came up around that time. Kind of what and and, and Jimmy Wynn as well. Maybe what these three players. Uh, did you see the potential there early on? Well, you know, in 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 the first place, the acquisition of talent uh, is is primarily the results of the efforts of the scouts out in the field. Too many times, the credit goes to the organization, to the to the owner, the president, the general manager, and quite frankly, in a lot of cases, they probably aren't even familiar with the player at the time he at the time he first signs with the organization. So, I, I think it's important to. In sense, give credit where it properly belongs, and that's with the scouts out in the field who are generally unheralded. In the case of Joe Morgan, he was recommended and signed, as I recall, by Bill White, W-I-G-H-T. Bill was a former 
major league relief pitcher. And if my memory is correct, I think we signed Morgan for for $3,000. Obviously, uh, Joe was rather uh, small in stature, and that uh, sometimes doesn't attract attention. But White obviously saw something he liked. But even there, I mean, Joe Joe ultimately surpassed, I think, anybody's expectations, because otherwise he uh, you wouldn't have been able to obtain him stand for $3,000 initially. Uh, I can recall Morgan in spring training in our minor league camp in 1963 in Moultrie, Georgia. That was my uh, last spring because after I came, after we returned from spring training, that's when I started with the Astrodome uh, project. But uh, in, in spring training that year, uh, Joe J- Joe was just uh, very competitive. He was the best uh, ping pong player we had in camp, you know, which would, which would be part of the recreation in the evening for the you know, for the guys and obviously on the field just displayed great energy, great effort, and uh, could could swing the bat and quick, uh, quickly advance. Jimmy Wynn is another interesting story. I had started uh, my, my career with the Reds in Cincinnati and spent uh, three years there, and part of my duties at that time were to uh, sort of coordinate the, the workouts of high school amateur players that we would bring into Crosley Field uh, to work out with, uh, with, with the club, one to sort of establish a relationship with them, and secondly, also to get more of a line on their uh, stands on their abilities. Although I, I, I do have to profess, workouts are not always the best way of evaluating talent. A lot of professional players can uh, can display pretty good uh, pr- prowess with the bat during batting practice. It's uh, something else under game conditions. But nevertheless, we worked out a lot of players in Cincinnati. They had a very very strong uh, high school baseball program, and our Scouts would recommend certain guys, and we would uh, and we would contact them and, and invite a few of them uh, uh, to come out to work out with the club at Crosley Field uh, uh, during pregame. And I can recall Jimmy Wynn being one of those. Uh, he ultimately signed with the Reds, and uh, we kept an eye on him. And after his uh, first professional year, uh, I believe down in Tampa in the Florida State League, we were able to uh, draft him, and obviously that became a great. Uh, success. And then you got uh, Larry Durker too, right out of high school, correct? Yeah, uh, Durker, I was not, that's when I was still working on the Astrodome project and uh, one of Durker obviously signed, I signed out of high school and was an instant success uh, but that uh, that was uh, his acquisition. Uh, the scouts involved, I think uh, were Jim Wilson and Carl Keel as I remember and they had to compete with other clubs to secure Larry's uh, services that was the uh, last year prior to the uh, to the free agent draft with the amateur free agent draft you mentioned the Astrodome and you were working with Judge Hoffines and the Houston Sports Association to build the Astrodome what kind of input did you have in the dome and and what was Judge Roy Hoffines like he was a marvel he, uh, he was he was he was so creative, uh, just a dynamic speaker, great salesman. The biography of him is entitled The Grand Huckster, and that's pretty much what he was. Uh, he, he could sell anything. And frankly, he had to sell the Astrodome concept, the idea. I mean, at that time, the, the thought of playing baseball indoors was really sort of revolutionary uh, and there were a lot of skeptics and it was through his own eloquence and his ability to articulate and to sell people that that came into being first of all he had to sell the uh, his, his local authorities uh, the politicians the county judge the county commissioners and everybody else involved and then he had to sell the public on the idea i can recall the bond issues the campaigns that he orchestrated and then he had to sell uh, his major league owners i mean he, uh, he you know frankly it was his uh, vision and his ability to sell and articulate uh, that was responsible uh, for the uh, for the national league owners uh, granting an expansion franchise to houston in 1960 from what i read you were the one though that had to solve the issue with the grass in the dome after they had the glare in the roof issue when the dome opened, which forced you to move to AstroTurf. Tell us about that and other concerns that I guess might have been specific to the first ever indoor Major League Stadium. Oh, boy. Uh, This is turning the clock back, obviously, uh, (laughs) 50 years now, and uh, a lot of memories. Uh, I had no background or training as an architect or engineer or anything of that nature. Has never entered my mind and frankly i after spring training in 1963 i was going to uh, leave uh, houston and rejoin gabe paul in cleveland uh, as stands in a baseball 
uh, role. Paul Richards had uh, taken over the baseball operation uh, in Houston after Gabe Paul uh, left uh, shortly after he came here. Uh, we, you know, as, as I said, I started November 1, 1960, and uh, Gabe uh, left in April of uh, 61 to go to Cleveland uh, because of a. Uh, of a disagreement uh, with with Hoffheinz over the uh, scope of uh, Gabe's authority at Cincinnati. Gabe had been had, had had complete autonomy. He ran the entire operation, and obviously, and uh, that's what he thought he would have at Houston. And uh, when you're involved in something with Hoffheinz, Hoffheinz is going to be a very dominant and very active participant, as he was. That created some problems between uh, between Gabe and the judge. And I uh, can recall discussing it with him several times over lunch and so on and he said this isn't what I bargained for and he picked up stakes and left and the the ownership ultimately uh, brought Paul Richards in to take over at the end of the 1961 uh, season and Richards initially wanted everybody in the organism that had previously been employed uh, he wanted their resignation and he put put together his own staff and uh, fortunately uh, the ownership Hoffheinz and Bob Smith and George Kirksey and Craig Cullen and they resisted that but still it was sort of a tenuous relationship with Richards and we uh, there were several things we didn't agree upon and I was going to leave and Hoffheinz uh, called me in and asked me to take over the uh, over the Astrodome project and I said I didn't have any background or training in that but anyway I discussed it with several people I called Gabe and told him what the opportunity was he encouraged me to take it he thought it was a you know he thought it was a once in a lifetime opportunity and I, and, I, and it was so I just uh, I just made a point I immersed myself in the plans and the specifications and learned as much as I could and tried to represent Hoffheinz and the club in the, in the day-to-day activities uh, you raised the question about the about the uh, grass and that was one of the memorable uh, things that we had to deal with because when the stadium was completed just before the opening of the 19 19- 65 uh, season uh, we had exhibition games uh, stands with the Yankees and as players took the uh, field for pregame practice uh, stands a couple of days before this first exhibition during daylight hours uh, it was obvious they were going to have difficulty picking up the ball from what was commonly uh, described as the glare of the skylights that did prove to be a problem and uh, so the the quick solution was to paint over a section of the skylights uh, that, that were behind home plate that the outfielders would look looking into as they picked up the picked up the flight of the ball well when uh, Sam, when you when you uh, when you coat the skylights and reduce the amount of light that posed a problem for the grass and uh, we Found early on in the uh, in the season that the grass was uh, was dying. We uh, tried several things. We spray painted it uh, green and uh, and tried to nurse it along. But that was obvious that there was an issue. And I remember uh, the judge Hoffines called me and says, "Tal, uh, you've got whatever resources you need. Go find a solution to this." And and so I dealt with that for some time. And this became a a national story that was, uh, you know, that was uh, that had great awareness, and I'd hear from a lot of a lot of people with a lot of ideas. Uh, some of them were, you know, somewhat goofy. <laughs> uh, some were from, uh, you know, people in the industrial sector or the agricultural sector that would uh, suggest various things. My office was just laden with all kinds of samples and products. Uh, chemicals and coatings and surfaces and so on. And along this time, I had a call from the athletic director at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island, Dick Thiebert. He was aware of the problem, and he said, I've, we've got something that might, that might interest you. And he said he was part of a committee of athletic directors that had a Ford Foundation grant to study the finding of suitable uh, surfaces for playgrounds, particularly in the inner cities where they would get a lot of wear and tear. And uh, he said, as a result of that, we've got a product up here. We've got a test installation at a private school. And so one of the architects, Jim Muller and myself, uh, flew up to uh, uh, to Providence and uh, met Dick Thiebert, went over to this uh, small private school, the Moses Brown School, and in their uh, gymnasium there on the, uh, on, on, the, on the surface, what would be the playing court for basketball, for example, they had this product, which was, uh, you know, green fibers that looked like 
grass and we ran on it and bounced balls off it and one thing and another. And I came away with the conclusion, as did the architect Jim Muller, that this presented certainly a possibility of something that might solve the issue. And uh, so that that that's that's the uh, that's the grass story. Yeah, I remember Bob Costas once said that uh, it was designed for kids to run on it in playgrounds and instead millionaires would end up running on it in stadiums. So that was, that's the story of AstroTurf. What was your emotions when you walk into that Astrodome first game against the Yankees and the exhibition game? And there's president Lyndon Johnson and governor John Conley, Mickey Mantle, the original NASA astronauts, they're all in the building. What was, what did you think when you walked in and saw all that? It's certainly one of my most memorable experiences. Actually, uh, you know, we stand the stand the night uh, before the opening, midnight that night. Obviously, we were, we were there were several of us, the architects and engineers, and and uh, people involved. Uh, you know, still with still finishing touches and uh, making sure everything was everything was ready. And I can, I can recall standing out in the middle of the playing field, right uh, right under the gondola in in the center of the dome. And that uh, it stands. It must have been midnight or around that time. And there were, you know, there were still people scurrying around uh, with finishing touches and checking this and that. And the house lights were on, so to speak. And uh, and I looked around at what had been created and just marveled at it. It was absolutely breathtaking. That's that's the biggest memory. Not when it was full, but when it, when it was from at least from my standpoint finished and ready to open and it was just absolutely breathtaking and and then of course to see and experience the public reaction not only not only the first game but the first season i mean it it was a marvel what it did for houston from a from a standpoint of pride and what it and what it did worldwide from a from a standpoint of recognition it was a big event i can I can recall during the construction days, and particularly as we got close to finishing the uh, the project in the uh, in the early months of 1965, and and uh, stands of conducting uh, tours for uh, people from around the world, uh, you know, uh, architects, engineers, uh, politicians, you know, people that were really interested in this, not just from a spectator standpoint, but uh, f- uh, from a standpoint of envisioning what this could do uh, as it stands in their country in their city obviously it uh, it was it was copied and emulated uh, over 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 the years uh, many many times where uh, you know obviously today dome stadiums are are accepted as as common as and uh, well not but uh, as it stands in 1965 believe me it was the eighth wonder of the world following up on that does that pain you right now to hear about what's happening with the astrodome and there have been plans to maybe do something about it, uh, convert it into something, and then demolish it. People talking about demolishing it. I mean, it was the eighth one of the world. It was a jewel. It's still probably the most recognizable landmark for the city of Houston. What would your plan be for the Dome if you were in charge or had that authority to say, yes, do this with it? Yeah, it's a difficult issue. And I, I can understand it's been 50 years, more than 50 years uh, since the Dome opened. And that means uh, there's a couple of generations of people, uh, really, that didn't live with it and didn't experience it. And as I said, dome stadiums today are not considered to be novel or unique. Uh, So I think there's a lack of appreciation from people that were born, uh, say, several years after the dome opened. I think there's a lack of appreciation for what it meant at that time. To me, it should be preserved as a as a historic edifice. It meant so much to the city as, as a landmark. It, it put Houston on the map worldwide. Uh, I mean, obviously, Houston was a growing city and and, and had a lot to be proud of. Uh, but it was the Astrodome that got this worldwide attention and it attracted all these visitors and so on. And it was such a such a significant event from a standpoint of architecture. I think it needs to be preserved uh, from a historic standpoint. You know, we've, we've preserved, fortunately, a lot of other things in this country and worldwide throughout the years that perhaps no longer have any useful function. I don't relate well to the idea of uh, converting it into into something that is far removed from what its original purpose and intent was. That uh, is is almost demeaning. I think the present 
plan as as advanced by the uh, by Judge Emmett and uh, and hopefully will be adopted by the county commissioners. I, I think that makes uh, some sense. It, it, it changes the interior of the, of the building some by removing the seats and raising the playing field, but at least you've preserved the shell. At the same time, it's, it's an economic issue, uh, but the numbers I've seen, that uh, I, I, I think this present uh, concept uh, doesn't uh, cost a whole lot more than what it would uh, to, to, to tear it down and demolish it. I don't think that's in the best interest of the of, of the city. Hopefully it can be preserved. Well, I want to switch back a little bit more to the, the personnel on the field. And even though this was before my time, looking back as an Astros fan, having grown up Astros fan all my life, looking back to the, the late 60s period, Speck Richardson, who was the GM at the time, actually took over for you. He made a, a series of trades, and, and he passed away earlier this year even. What do you think about what happened during that period? Because I just look back on it and see Mike Cuellar traded, Rusty Staub traded, John Mayberry traded, and even, uh, worst of all, like Joe Morgan, Hall of Fame career with the Cincinnati Reds, able to keep some of those young guys there and, and with the other young Astros talent and could have won you know, several pennants. Who knows? But... That, that's one of the things that's always been perplexing. Your thoughts on that and, and, and what he did as a general manager of the Houston Astros. Yeah, that's, uh, that's one of the unpleasant memories I, I have. You know, as, as I mentioned earlier, that the first 13 years of the franchise, we signed and developed more players than any other major league club, and many of them were quite successful. Uh, you, you know, you mentioned Mayberry and and Staub and Morgan, and you could go on and on and on. Unfortunately, we dealt away an awful lot of that. Every general manager, I guess, has his own ideas and concepts. Uh, Speck was not experienced or well-versed in the uh, in the player personnel aspect of the game when he was appointed general manager. Uh, his experience had been on the business side as a minor league uh, business manager and uh, you know, which is basically uh, promoting the club and selling tickets and generating revenue. And uh, in the early years with the Houston Sports Association, with with the Colt 45s and later the Astros when they were renamed when they opened the Dome, Speck was uh, really spending his time on the his stands on the business affairs of the of, of the club. I don't think he was a very very good evaluator or recognizer of talent. I uh, I remember I was just shocked uh, at at the Morgan trade and uh, I can recall Joe Heiling was the beat writer for the Houston Post at that time and uh, the the trade as I recall we were in Scottsdale Arizona for meetings uh, at major league baseball meetings when word came to me that and uh, that, that we had traded Morgan I mean I I was I supposedly was at that time was director of player personnel but uh uh, Speck uh, did not choose to tell me about this or advise me about it. And uh, when, I, when I found out about it, I, I was incensed and probably made some comments I shouldn't know. I remember calling, I remember telling Joe Heiling, who was standing there, and, and Joe said, what do you think? And I, I said, I'm, I'm, I'm just devastated. I said, Morgan, Morgan's going to become an MVP. And sure enough, it was just a couple of years later, he won MVP honors back-to-back. And when I saw Speck a few minutes after the trade was announced, and I said, well, you may as well trade Mayberry now, because obviously the Morgan trade to Cincinnati, we got back Lee May, a first baseman, Tommy Helves, a second baseman, and Jimmy Stewart, a utility player. And I said, you may as well trade Mayberry, because, uh, you know, he, he, I thought John was ready. His path was blocked now by May. And so, obviously, you know, that was one thing uh, Speck did follow through on. He traded Mayberry. <laughs> But I was I, I I was just devastated by that, and uh, you know you you cite other other names, Mike Quayer uh, being uh, being being a very prominent one of players that uh, the organization, for one reason or the other, uh, gave up on. In some cases, it was due to uh, managers uh, not caring for for a player. Uh, that was sort of the root of the Rusty Staub uh, trade. Uh, Grady Hatton was a manager when Rusty was traded, and he sort of advocated uh, that that trade. I remember Harry Walker never thought Mayberry would hit. He didn't think J.R. could throw either. <laughs> but uh, these, these are things that, uh, you know, that, that happen. Everybody's got a different view on on players, it's uh, it's it's not an easy task, and certainly took a toll on the uh, on the organization. I think if it hadn't been for some of those trades, we would have had uh, obviously much better results in the uh, 
in the late 1960s and uh, early 1970s, and uh, that that might have saved the uh, franchises. Uh, you know, for, it turned out Hoffines. Hoffines became ill, and the club was ultimately taken over by the creditors by Ford and GE, and then ultimately sold later on to, to John McMullen. And so. Now I want to get to McMullen in a second. You, you mentioned Joe Morgan. Uh, for Astros fans too young to remember, he spends eight years with the Astros. Then the next five years after they trade him to Cincinnati, he's in the top eight every single year in the MVP race, including two MVP awards. So, yeah, that that, that really stuck as an Astros fan. Let me ask you, what was it like to be courted and to work for a young George Steinbrenner? Because you go from the Astros to the Yankees in 1973. Yeah, uh, George was interesting. I frankly enjoyed my experience with the Yankees. George was volatile, very competitive, sometimes could be terse with family and friends and employees and and so on. Enjoyed, you know, but I enjoyed the relationship. Uh, you know, uh, we we had our battles and quite frankly, George enjoyed battles. I mean, he he might take a what you think is an outrageous stance on something, and if you fight back or fire back at him, if you had evidence on your on your side or strong enough argument, one uh, uh, stands you could prevail. I didn't have any difficulty with uh, with with George. I, I I didn't care for the way he would sometimes abuse people, but sometimes uh, you just have to stand up and fight for yourself. I much preferred working for George than I did some of the other uh, some of the other relationships I had. I, uh, I I thought the Yankee experience was great. George, I think, was uh, misportrayed a lot. Uh, it was always the difficult side of George and how hard he was to work for. But uh, George Steinbrenner was a very generous person. He was a very caring person. He did. He helped more more kids and more families and more more people that were in some kind of uh, financial distress uh, it stands without any acknowledgement. He he sent more. He paid for more scholarships, more hospital bills, uh, more funerals, and so on without any acknowledgement. Uh, he might fire an employee years later if that employee uh, was in dire need. It would be George that would come to his rescue. He had a very generous side to him, and I I, I have to defend him in many. In many areas, he could be tough on managers and players and sometimes uh, just uh, spoke out too quickly. Uh, but there was a pretty good heart underneath some of that. In 75, you're, you're hired back as the Astros GM, and then you build that memorable team that goes on to the first playoff experience for the Astros in the 80 NLCS season. Uh, what were some of the key moves during that time that, that led to the 80 team? What were the moves that uh, you really felt like was the difference in, in turning that team into what it was? Well, there were several. One, the hiring of Bill Verdon, who I think was just an exceptional manager. And uh, he I mean, he, he was able to take a club and really mold it together. Uh, they, they gave great effort. They were very tenacious. We uh, always in a lot of close Low-scoring ball games. The Astrodome obviously was uh, was more a pitcher's park than it was a hitter's park. Runs were hard to come by. We didn't have a lot of power on the club. I mean, uh, I can recall 1979 and 1980. I think Jose Cruz led the club in home runs with something like 13 one year. We were able to able with uh, strong pitching and a great bullpen and speed on the bases and wanted to manufacture runs and to win. And Bill Bill had the ability to. Always keep the team well well focused. I think yeah, you hear hear a number of players that will still regard Bill Manager ever and Bill Verdon as the best manager that they, they ever played for, and I, I I certainly concur. I think he deserves a a whole lot of credit uh, for taking that club and uh, building it into the championship it was in 1980. The two key moves I think. Uh, that we made uh, in 1979, uh, we, we I thought we had two holes, shortstop and 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 catching. We were able to trade uh, for for Craig Reynolds uh, from Seattle as as a shortstop and acquire Alan Ashby uh, from from Toronto. And I think those two two moves sort of uh, rounded out the the club. Obviously, we had signed Nolan Ryan as a as a free agent for the 1980 season. Brought Joe Morgan back, and he played a key. Role, but we uh, then uh, you know, but we had Cruz and Cedeno and Poole and Art Howe, and uh, it, it was just a tremendous aggregation. I mentioned the bullpen: uh, Dave Smith and, and Joe Sambito, both of whom came 
came through our farm system, uh, picked up Frank Lacordi in a in a trade. It, it was a club where virtually all 25 players contributed, and it was just a lot of fun. It's interesting that so many uh, members of that team and want to have remained in the game in some kind of an active role. Bruce Bochy is as as a manager. Art Howe is a manager. Uh, Louis Pujols, uh, who was a uh, who was a backup catcher, uh, managed in the big leagues for Detroit. A lot of people that have remained in the game, and I just sort of think that sort of speaks to the to the kind of personnel that we were able to assemble back in 1979 and 1980. We took a club that had finished 43 and a half games out in 1975, and by 1979 competed strongly, ended up a game and a half behind the behind the big red machine. Then in 1980, we're fortunate to win the division and uh, then engaged in that memorable five-game LCS with the Phillies. Well, I want to get to the LCS in a second, but I, I want to ask you about J.R. Richard. I know this, you've probably been asked about this a million times, but what do you remember about that whole time? And it was just a couple of months, actually, before the end of the season. Oh boy! You know, uh, Jr. was—he uh, was on the path to become a certain Hall of Famer. I've often said that if, uh, when asked if, if I was responsible for selecting a starting pitcher for one game that I absolutely had to win, my choice would be either Jr. Richard or Bob Gibson. And uh, you know, Jr. was just dominating. And uh, when he suffered his stroke in, uh, in mid-season. 1980. That was just devastating from a from a personal standpoint and and from a standpoint of what it meant to the club and its ability. I mean, I mean, frankly, we went into the into the postseason in 1979 in 1980 rather with without without Jr. and then during the playoffs we lost Cedeno and other injuries. Uh, but to get back to to Jr. was just absolutely dominating. Deserves all the credit in the world for for becoming the pitcher he did. Uh, I. I remember, uh, remember when we signed him out of Ruston, Louisiana, in his early years in the in the minor leagues. Uh, you know, it, uh, Jr. had control issues. He had to master that, and he just became uh, very, very competitive. I mean, he was he was a scary guy for Stanford hitters to face. He uh, he's six eight, and uh, coming at you with with that tremendous fastball and devastating slider and whatnot. Uh, he he was. He was virtually unhittable. He was a dominant pitcher for for, for about for two or three years there. That LCS was considered one of the best series of all time. And I know you love baseball history. This has to be uh, a real special series for you to get the chance to watch. Where do you think this playoff series ranks all time? To me, it, it, it would have to rank number one, obviously, because of, because of personal involvement. But even putting that aside, just from a historic standpoint, I still think it merits that ranking. I mean, the last four games all went extra innings. That in itself is, is unique. The great rallies, the Phillies in game game five uh, score, what, five runs in the eighth inning to take a lead, and the Astros come back and tie it up. And why not? It was a very, you know, I, I thought both clubs were very resilient and showed the ability to, to bounce back. Number of memorable uh, moments and plays. Uh, it's in game game four with the controversial ball hit back to Vern Rule, whether it was caught on the on the on, on the fly, so to speak, or or trapped, and whether whether it was one out, two outs, or three outs, and the long delay that that, that ensued before National League President Chubb Feeney had to had to make a ruling. Game three, which was a one to nothing uh, win for the Astros, again in extra innings on a Joe Morgan uh, triple, and uh, just uh, just so many many things, uh, controversial plays uh, about uh, Gary Woods uh, tagging up and leaving third base too soon, and that run being nullified. Uh, just just all kinds of exciting plays. I I, I still enjoy going back. I, I don't enjoy the final result, but I enjoy the uh, and the games and the. And the, and, the, and the plays that were made. And as I, as I said, I, th- I thought it was the best playoff series of all time. Yeah, I'm eight years old when this uh, series happens, and I still remember the Vern Rule play like it was yesterday. I want to ask you, because this, this is one of the more bizarre twists in, in Houston's crazy sports history, and there's a lot of weird things that have happened. But from what I understand, in 76, you solved the Astros' ownership issues by convincing the Yankees' limit owner, John McMullen, to buy the team. But then... All of a sudden, after the end of the 80 season, you go to the playoffs. He lets you go. What in the world happened? 
Uh, I wasn't really involved in, in, in encouraging him to buy the team. When Dave Lefevre was a, uh, a friend of mine. I'd met Dave when I was working for the Yankees. He was a lawyer on Wall Street, and he was representing uh, Japanese interests. Uh, that we, uh, that, and I was representing the Yankees, and we actually entered into an agreement uh, where the Yankees were to provide consulting services to the Nippon Ham Fighters, one of the, one of the teams in the Japanese uh, Major League. And uh, that, that's how Dave and I first met, and we continued that relationship. And, uh, and he came down and visited in Houston many times after I, after I returned in 1975. And it was, uh, and uh, Dave was aware that GE and Ford were interested in selling the club. And it was actually uh, Dave who uh, met McMullen through a third party. And the two of them worked on uh, putting the ownership deal together. And then uh, Dave and McMullen became estranged. I found I found McMullen very difficult to to work for. Uh, he had inherited my services. I recall the first first time I met him, I picked up uh, Dave Lefevre and John at the Houston airport, and we're and we're, and we're driving back into Houston. And uh, one of the first words McMullen ever uh, ever ever said was uh, uh, asking about moving the team to New Orleans, and I. Uh, and I, I was just shocked by that, and uh, you know, and probably indicated that in my response. And then he, uh, then he used to tell me, uh, "Why not?" Uh, he, he didn't care for the Astrodome. Shea Stadium was his idea of a model stadium, and I uh, obviously, obviously couldn't agree with that. And we, we uh, anyways, several, several issues uh, that that we disagreed upon. I found him very difficult to, to work for when I when I wanted to renew. Bill Verdon and the coaches' contracts uh, toward the end of the 79 season. He wanted to wait until the spring of 1980. I said, I said, John, that's not the way baseball works. And, uh, and uh, I remember Dave Smith, uh, who was a fine relief pitcher for us in 1980, gave up a home run in, in the Shea Stadium in August of that year. The only home run Smitty gave up all, all season long. And, McMullen was just incensed about that. Uh, another, you know, as I said, the 1980 team had to rely upon the speed on the bases. We had to be aggressive, uh, which is Bill Verdon's style. Bob Lillis was our third base coach initially, and occasionally we'd have somebody uh, thrown out at the plate. Uh, that happens when you're, you know, when you're forcing the issue and being aggressive. You're not going to win them all. And uh, McMullen would become incensed and want to fire Lillis, and we finally had to had to switch him for a period of time from third base to first base just to be able to be able to retain his services. There were, you know, when J.R. was still healthy in, in 1979, I had to extend his contract, and, uh, and McMullen was sort of opposed to that. I mean, it, just, it, it was just very, very difficult. He had inherited my services, uh, and he, John came into his ownership the second half of 19. 79 I recall when the the, uh, the final three games in Los Angeles in 1980 uh, before the one game uh, playoff and we're all at the uh, at the Biltmore Hotel in Los Angeles after the devastating third loss on a Sunday by one run and uh, getting ready for Monday's game and McMullen wanted us to make sure that all the all the that we had uh, uh, they had all the players uh, sort of a bed check at, <laughs> in the early early evening Sunday night. Well, you can't do that. The players have to go out to dinner. And he was just unreasonable from a standpoint of, of his uh, baseball knowledge and familiarity. And I think he resented the uh, the accolades and the, and, the, and the tributes that Bill Verdon got and that the club received and felt that uh, should be more directed uh, toward him. So that that was a that was a path of uh, stands of disaster, and uh, I had a year remaining on my contract uh, after the 1980 season. And uh, John said he had no intention of uh, of extending that contract, and uh, that uh, he didn't think it would work well for uh, for a lame duck situation. So uh, best that I best that I be terminated or let go at that time. So uh, that's. Uh, you know, that's the way it was. <laughs> well, third, third Astro stint might be the charm. Drayton McLean brings you back as the team president. And 
what was Drayton like? Because, you know, he, he elicits mixed emotions by Astro fans. You, you know this, Tal. He was key in helping the Astros stay in Houston, and the Astros had their greatest run of success. But, you know, some people consider him short-sighted at times and maybe too miserly for some of the fans liking. Of course, the last few years left a definite sour taste in everybody's mouth in the way he sort of exited the stage. What can you tell us about working for him? Oh, I, 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 I think Drayton deserves a lot of credit. When he, he took over the club in 1993, and from 1993 through 2008, the Astros had the second-best overall record in the National League behind only the Braves, who, who won all those, all those consecutive uh, division titles. And so on uh, the Astros, and, and the overall, I think had the fourth, fourth or fifth best overall record, uh, obviously behind the Braves in the National League, and and the Yankees, and uh, I want to say Cleveland in the in the uh, in the American League. I have to go back and re- and, and review this, but I know it was e- either fourth or fifth. You know, we, have, we went to the playoffs in, in, in 1997, 1998, 1999. Opened the new stadium at that time, Enron, in 2000. The club didn't play well, but the stadium was a great success. And in 2001, we're back in the playoffs. And in 2004 and then 2005 World Series, I, I mean, I think, I, I think the overall results were very good. He was able to, re, able to retain Biggio and, and, and Bagwell. I know he gets criticized sometimes for uh, you know for Mike Hampton or Daryl Kyle leaving and he responded when we wanted to sign uh, Jeff Kent who played a key role I thought in the 2003-2004 seasons and uh, even though that was going to present a problem uh, asking Bizio to play another position you know Drayton Drayton if if you made a, a, a persuasive argument he was accommodating uh, it's the you know, ownership's uh, ownership's right and prerogative, and frankly, their deed to uh, to question what what is being done. But I, th- I thought he was very supportive, and I thought the, I thought the results spoke for themselves. Now, at the end of 2008, I can recall distinctly, Drayton called his senior management. Uh, uh, at that time, Ed Wade was a GM, and. Pam Gardner, president of business operations, and myself in, and told us that he had an agreement to sell the club to to, to uh, Jim Crane. This is the end of 2008. Obviously, uh, uh, Stan, that deal fell apart. That was uh, sort of a disappointing blow to, to Drayton because he had, he had the mindset to sell, had a deal in place, and then for one reason or the other, it didn't materialize. But obviously... That set in motion what happened in 2009, 2010, and 2011 when the club was ultimately sold to to to, uh, to Jim Crane. Those three years, obviously, Drayton is focused more on preparing the club to sell, to uh, to reducing any obligations or liabilities that a seller might uh, uh, inherit. Uh, at that time, he didn't know he was going to sell to Crane. He was hoping he would be able to sell to other other parties, and he was frankly dressing the club up for uh, up for sale. Uh, that took a toll on the, on the results on the on the playing field from a standpoint of the uh, of, uh, of the retention of players or spending of money for amateur draft choices and those things for which he's criticized. But he, you know, he, at the same time, he he, he deserves credit uh, for bringing Roger Clemens in and and Andy Pettit and uh, why not? Uh, he, he you know he he uh, he spent money up through 2008 when it was warranted and the results I thought were very very good uh you know he, he we we had had clubs that with the exception of of uh, of the year 2000 competed every year and made the playoffs uh six times under his ownership when you came back in 94 it was the Oilers were leaving town because of the situation with the stadium and everything and the Astrodome how strange was it to be at that point over 30 years later where you knew it was probably time to pull the plug on the dome the eighth wonder of the world and how concerned were you about the Astros future then the modifications the renovations that were made to the Astrodome in the attempt to satisfy Bud Adams when he threatened to move the team to Jacksonville where the scoreboard uh, was taken down and 
filled in with seats, and the exterior of the dome was uh, changed with what I called the the exit areas that looked like silos to me. I think it really changed the appearance. I think the uh, ownership and management had let the dome deteriorate some uh, o- over the years, uh, particularly uh, as it stands in the in the 1980s and prior to Drayton's purchase in 1993. And you know, I think the maintenance and the appearance suffered and, and the whole aspect with the scoreboard gone and and so on changed changed things so uh i think at that time drayton's desire and efforts to uh, to build a new stadium downtown i think that made sense and i think obviously it has worked out well i hated to see the astrodome uh, vacated uh, but uh, that had uh, that had been uh, 35 years or or so, and that's uh, that's a long time in the life of stadiums. I see other cities now. I mean, the Braves have had, well, they're going into their, what, their third stadium uh, now, and I see uh, up in Arlington, uh, the Rangers are planning on a new facility there. So as much as the Astrodome meant, you know, perhaps it was time to, to, to consider something else. And ownerships want to put their own stamp on things. And I suspect if, if the Astrodome had been built under Drayton McLean's uh, ownership uh there may may have been greater efforts to uh you know to to stay there and to modernize it and and uh, and to improve improve the appearance and the and and the upkeep but that's uh you know that's just a fact of life uh, the Enron and now Minute Maid has has worked out very well for the ball club from a and from a fan standpoint and so on and I think uh, I think that's uh that's something that uh, has certainly added to, added to the city well, fans would be disappointed if I didn't ask you about your hill, which uh, everybody else knows is Tal's hill, but now I'm talking to Tal, so I could say your hill. Uh, I mean, they name it for in your honor for your involvement in the ballpark, but, you know, there's just been the debate about the safety and all of that sort of thing. They're taking it away finally this offseason. You know, are you disappointed? Kind of what was your feeling on it the, throughout the entire history of Tal's hill? Yeah, again, you've got you've got different ownership and different administration, and they inherited the hill and the name of the hill. And frankly, I I thought it added an interesting dimension to the ballpark. Heard heard these arguments about injury. Well, it's been it's been there now. This is the 17th season. There, to my knowledge, never been an injury that's sustained or occurred on on the hill. I see more players uh, more infielders trip over the pitcher's mound on pop-ups or or uh, players getting injured uh, in foul territory by tarps or in in or uh, stand running over uh, running over mounds in foul territory where where in the few parks that remain with mounds and inside the playing surface if you're looking at the most memorable uh, defensive plays in the history of the ballpark. I think many of them uh, were, were occasioned uh, by, by, by the Hill. Uh, the Lance Berkman uh, catch uh, being the most notable one. I think that's a classic. I still marvel and enjoy uh, seeing that every every time it's replayed. I thought the Hill really added an interesting aspect. I much prefer that uh, uh, to swimming pools or something of that nature in ballparks. You know, when you take the Hill out, or, or frankly, when you bring center field in another 30 or 35 feet and the, and uh, that's going to affect the power alleys too. And I, I'm concerned about what that's going to do to the actual game conditions. As some fans may recall when we first opened the new ballpark downtown and in uh, 2000, uh, there were, uh, if I recall correctly, 266 home runs hit at home and it stands in that ballpark in 81 games. And and there was great concern about the about the field dimensions that it, that it was playing as a bandbox because of the Crawford boxes in left field and what is a relatively sh- a short vertical wall in right field. The games were high scoring, home runs were plentiful, and so on. And that's why I had maintained in the design stage that you you have to compensate for the short short dimensions down the foul lines with a deep center field, much like Yankee Stadium, the Polo Grounds, uh, Fenway, and other parks uh, have done. You've got to compensate by giving pitchers some way to get hitters out. The depth we have in in the power alleys and center field has uh, has proved useful. The pitchers pitchers uh, soon found out how to how to use that to to their advantage and not and try not to let the uh, 
right-handed hitters pull to the Crawford boxes or left-handed hitters pull to right field and whatnot. So when you, when you change those dimensions, what's it going to do to the playing of the game? I hope it doesn't become a bandbox. I, 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 I think it's played well ever since, uh, ever, ever since uh, the 2000 season. And uh, I'll, I'll be interested to see what, what, what effect this has. I want to ask about front offices, too, because they look a lot different than they did uh, a generation ago uh, with baseball lifers, like you've mentioned. And they've been replaced by engineering grads and software people and IT grads, MBA uh, graduates. And it's just very different. And the Astros is a front office now that's on the cutting edge of analytics I just am curious for your thoughts on this evolution of the game to uh, being a data-driven one, your assessment of things in that regard, and would you handle things differently if you were handed the GM reins today as opposed to several years ago? And I know you like numbers, Tal, because I, I met you at the, at the Sabre meeting, so you are a fan of stats a little bit. Yeah, I think analytics are important. I, I think that's part of your ongoing evaluation. I am more inclined to look at uh, at statistics and analytics from a standpoint of explaining what has happened, not necessarily as a unfallible prediction of things to come <laughs> because it's the game is still played by people and performances change day to day. I would use analytics to uh, really uh, question perhaps evaluations. Well, you say this, but here are the numbers. What accounts for the difference? Why? Is there something we're missing? I've always been a believer. I, I stressed on base average uh, many years ago, back in the 1960s and 1970s, when it was uh, before Moneyball was written. I, I, I think uh, I think that's always been an important aspect. I've always had an appreciation for that. I think analytics and statistics are, are a resource that you should certainly use heavily. Uh, back in uh, when I returned from the Yankees, and uh, we were the first club at that time, I think, to go out and hire a uh, statistical consultant. And the, uh, the analytics or statistical uh, departments are much larger and much greater than they than they were then. I think it's something that has to be used, but at the same time, I don't think you can discount that the uh, contribution that the experienced baseball people, the uh, the scouts on both the amateur and the professional levels make. It's uh, still a game played by people, not by robots. And uh, I think there is uh, <clears throat> I think there is a difference. As as a talent evaluator and a guy that's been in charge of a farm system, would would you have had the foresight to draft or, or bring in a guy like Jose Altuve? Could you have figured that one out? <laughs> oh, he he was uh, he uh, he was brought in uh, during the uh, Drayton McLean regime. Uh, right. Altuve and and Keuchel and Springer and Castro. Those those were all players, and he traded for several others that are no longer here. Oh, J.D. Martinez was signed under the Drayton McLean. The ownership regime, and from that standpoint, why not uh, San Altuve signing? The only thing uh, stands that might have uh, might have been been something that scouts didn't necessarily embrace were were uh, was his size, and that that's sort of comparable to the Joe Morgan <laughs> situation back in back in uh, 1962-63. So, uh, frankly, why not uh, say we did bring Altuve in. I, I saw him play at uh, at uh, Greenville, Tennessee in the Appalachian League, and uh, he stood out then because of his, of his energy and because of his, uh, of, his uh, of, of, uh, of his overall abilities. Best Astro of all time. Let me get your answer to that. And uh, Cesar Cedeno is a guy that um, m- might be in that conversation, I would assume. You uh, you know me well. You anticipate my answer. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 it, it's hard because obviously uh, Craig Biggio is is deservingly a Hall of Famer. Jeff Bagwell should be. Jose Cruz has had a long and uh, remarkable career as a, as a as a player. Uh, just so many. I mean, as it stands, the pitchers. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Jr. and and and, and Durker. Just I mean, it goes on and on and on. I, th- I thought the most exciting talent that I that I saw in an Astro uniform, and I'm, I'm somewhat partial or influenced to the earlier years when I was more directly involved, I guess, from a you know 
I, I would uh, I've often cited uh, Cedeno. CC or uh, Cesar was just a a superb talent. Unfortunately, career cut a little bit short by injuries and so on. But he was just a remarkable talent. I thought he was destined to be a Hall of Famer. He I thought he was as close to Willie Mays as anybody I ever saw. Yeah, and my apologies, I forgot. Yes, Joe Morgan was also kind of doubted a little bit because of his size, like like Altuve. And yeah, you you brought him in, so I don't I don't even know why I was asking the question because that <laughs> that's pretty obvious. But hey, you spent so much time with us, and this is a great thing about a, what we do is we get to to spend a little bit more time. And uh, can't thank you enough for taking the time to do this. And thank you so much for all the years uh, with what you did with the Astros as a, as a fan. We've seen a lot of, of fun stuff in the Astros history. Uh, enjoyed this you guys have have uh, certainly asked some very interesting and thought-provoking questions and it's fun to sort of relive some of these things and and to engage in this conversation you've done a nice job with it and i've enjoyed it you're listening to houston sports talk don't forget to follow houston sports talk on facebook and twitter subscribe to us on itunes spotify the google podcast app or the stitcher app you can support us by telling your friends about us Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.